welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. We're going to go ahead and open here in prayer, and I'm going to have you guys um, recite with me the Lord's Prayer as we start our, our time of prayer, and it'll be up on the screen here. Let's pray together. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Father, that is the prayer of our hearts. Lord, we desire above all else that you would receive all glory and honor and praise. We pray that we would do nothing this morning to try to steal your glory. We pray that you would guard your glory and give it only to yourself and to your Son and to the Spirit. And we pray, Lord, and we look forward to the day when your kingdom will come fully and your will will be fully done here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray, Lord, that you would start in our hearts today in bringing your kingdom here, that you would start in our hearts You would do it through our lives. We pray, Lord, also that you would make new kingdom citizens, even this morning, from new people who come to trust and obey your Son. We pray, Lord, too, for our daily bread, represented in this word, that you would feed us by your word and that you would feed us by the Lord's Supper this morning, Lord. We pray that you would feed us with your holy food, that we would leave here refreshed and strengthened and more alive than ever. And Father, as we gather too, we admit our sin. Father, we have sinned against you and against our neighbor in thought and in word and in deed. We've done it through negligence, through weakness, and through our own deliberate fault. We are truly sorry and repent of all of our sin. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, we pray, forgive us for all of this that is in our past, and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Father, help us also to give that gift of forgiveness to other people, that, gift, that precious gift of forgiveness you've given to us. Help us, Lord, to re-gift it to those around us. And Father, we pray that you would deliver us from the evil one this morning. Many have come here harassed by him. Some have come here ensnared by him. Some have come even enslaved by him. And we pray, Lord, that you would break every chain. Lord, as we gather here as your kids, we pray that you would encamp your holy angels around us, that you would protect this gathering, that the power of the evil one would be shut out from here, Lord. We, we, we acknowledge, Lord, that they have no right to be here in a gathering of your children, and so we pray that you would uh, protect us from spiritual attack, keep our minds and our hearts um, clear toward you as we sit and we listen to a word from our Father. Lord, we are your children, and we want you to speak to us, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. So over the last few weeks, we've been in uh, 1 Peter here, and we've been seeing how we're to live in kind of the, uh, the unbelieving society that we're in. We saw that in chapter 2. We saw how we're supposed to live in our families. That's the beginning of chapter 3. And now he tells us how to, we're supposed to live together as a church. And I say that because it starts with, finally, all of you. You see that in verse 8. Finally, all of you. Um, in the context, that would have been people that were slaves and people that were free. It would have been husbands. It would have been wives. It would have been rich people and poor people, Jews and Gentiles. 
Gentiles, as this whole kind of motley first century crew of the church gathered together as a family, he says, now all of you, this is what I want you to do. And, and as he describes what we're to do in, in verse 8, it sounds like a little piece of heaven, actually. I mean, if you think about a group of people, a community of people that really do this, it says, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Sounds like heaven, right? Sounds awesome. I mean, this is what the church is designed to be. God has designed the church to be a refuge for you. God has designed the church to be a support to you in the hardships of life and in a hostile culture. And you can imagine how much it meant to those first century people as they gathered together there. They're on, in the first century on the frontier of the Roman Empire. They're a persecuted church, and some of them are slaves, and some of them have really difficult situations in their marriages, and they all gathered together. Um, this was meant to be a place of refuge. And we too, guys, live in a culture that tries to undermine our core convictions and our, and our values as disciples all week. And we too struggle with family problems. All of us do. We, we arrive here beat up by the world, don't we? I'm reminded of that old picture. It's a, I don't know what war it is, but there's a soldier and he's carrying another soldier on his back and he's got his gun, you know? And I feel like that's the way a lot of us have arrived here this morning, right? Either with somebody on our backs or, or we're the one on someone's back, but we arrive beat up. We arrive needing refuge, and God has designed the church to be that, a refuge from a hostile culture, a, a shelter in the storm. We had a pretty significant storm for us this week, and this is a shelter from the storm. This is like a, a place that's like a shock absorber of trials, right, where we can lean into each other when, when things knock us down, and we can even carry each other. And that's where we're meant to be. And, and we can only be that, though, if we do what verse 8 says. If we have a unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. God's designed that for us in this room. And I, I want to tell you guys from the beginning, because a lot of you guys are cynical. I love you, but you're cynical. I don't know. You've been in the church a while. and stuff like that. This is not idealistic, and this is not unrealistic. I just want to throw that out there. And maybe I'm like the last naive person out there. But I actually believe we can live this. I actually believe this is all possible. I believe that to a large degree we are living it. And I just want to say like this is for us in this room right now to live together. Like this is something God want, it really wants to empower us to do. It's actually a gift of the gospel, guys. It's a gift of the gospel. When you were born again, you actually got united to Christ by the Holy Spirit, you're connected. So Jesus ascended, reigning in heaven, right? You're connected to him by the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. Obviously, the Trinity always stays together, so he's there as well. And he is the connection between you and Christ such that you are legally treated just like Jesus, right? Just like a marriage union. You get all the assets of the other person. You are treated as, as righteous. You're legally treated just like Jesus because you're connected to him. And not only that, but you actually can now have Jesus' life flowing into you by the Holy Spirit. Like, that's all real, okay? That's all a, a, a reality of the gospel. And that's why I say these things are livable. In John 15, he Jesus talked about how we're like branches in the vine. And he says this in John 15, 3. Already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Now, that's, that's about the legal union, right? We're united to Christ until we get treated as if we're clean. And then it says... Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, will bear much fruit. So it looks like this. When you came to Christ, you were born again. You're like this dead branch, 
And that dead branch was grafted into this live vine of Christ. And what happened was, is that his life began to come through you. So it pushed out the deadness of this dead branch. Leaves appear, fruit, boop, 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 you know, all kinds of grapes on there, right? That's all his life coming into you. Because you are born again, because the Holy Spirit lives within you, his life is now coming out of you, turning a dead branch into a live branch with fruit. Like, that's what it means to be united with Christ. And we can actually learn, what discipleship's about is, how do I maximally draw Jesus' life into myself so that he lives through me? That's what discipleship's about. And this passage shows us what it looks like when that happens. It shows us both um, what it looks like to have Jesus' feelings for other people and what it looks like to have Jesus' responses towards other people. And so in verse 8, we'll look at feelings, and in 9 and 10, we'll look at responses. But we can actually have Jesus' life lived out through us from the inside, from the feelings and thoughts out to the actions, because we're united with him. You know, Paul said this weird thing in Philippians 1.8. He said, God is my witness that I yearn for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus. Now notice he did not say, God is my witness that I, I love you the way Jesus loves you. He said, no, I yearn for you with Christ's affections. What is he saying? Jesus' actual emotions and affections for you have been drawn into me by the Holy Spirit that I actually feel his emotions for you. Not like his, but feel his. That's available to us. In this passage, we're going to see what that looks like. First, let's look at what it looks like to feel for each other the way Jesus feels. Look at verse 8 again. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. First, a unity of mind. You need to mind. This is a deep desire to love, to live with each other harmoniously. Okay? This is a mindset that I'm going to live with the rest of you as, in as much harmony as possible. Okay? Unity of mind, though, guys, does not believe that we believe all the exact same things in doctrine and in our lives. Okay? That's not the standard. The standard is not that every one of you in here would believe exactly the same things doctrinally or the exact same things about life. That's what unity of mind is. It's not cloning. Okay? A church is not about a cloning farm of people that, are, that believe all the same things. Now, unity like this would be easy to maintain if we were a church that didn't care about theology. There are churches like that where you get in discussion, you start to dig into something deeper, and somebody raises the flag of like, oh, it's not a salvation issue, which means like, let's just not even talk about it. How boring, you know? How sad. Guys, we're a church that wants to know the details. You know why we want to know the details? We want as crisp and clear a picture of who God is and what he's doing as possible. We don't want fuzzy. We want details, right? We want clarity, right? So we care about theology. The other way, though, to have a church that has unity of mind but cares about theology would be to basically only really include people that believe just like us. That it believe exactly the same things. And there are churches like that where, you know, you're allowed to come here, but if you're really going to be with us, you have to believe everything exactly the same way we do. That's one way to do it. We don't want to take either route. And I'm going to propose a different route, which might be highly dangerous, but I think is good, which is that we want to be a place where we study hard, that we get into the details, and even debate it, but don't divide over it. And I'll just give you an example. I'm going to throw my cards. I love the theology of the Protestant Reformation. And you guys already know this about me, probably. But I mean, I love it because I believe that that tradition, more than any other tradition, got this book right. Okay? And that's why I love it. So I love things like you hear me talk about the Belgic Confession. You're like, this is bizarre. Or the Heidelberg Catechism. I love that stuff. Okay? Um, That's where I'm coming from. Except that I do believe in believer's baptism, not infant baptism. And then also I believe that all the spiritual gifts continue to this day, which makes me a bit of a unicorn. Okay? That's kind of a weird thing. Okay? 
And the funny thing is, is that I've just given you a list of three things, and I've given you at least one thing to dislike about me just there. And each one of you probably have one. Some of them I look at you have two that you don't agree with me on, which is fine. Um, but what's interesting, what's funny about it is you do like when I mix those three combinations together, you do like what comes out of the pulpit, and you do like, like what's in the church. So what I'd say is, if you don't like one of those ingredients, enjoy the salad, okay? Enjoy the soup that comes from that, right? If you don't like one of the ingredients, it's fine, because unity of mind does not mean that you have to agree with me on every point of doctrine. If you did, there would only be four of you here, and it would be my family, okay? Right? You don't have to believe it. And the other thing it means is that I do not have a particular burden to squeeze you into my mold. I have no particular burden to do that. Um, the mold that I'm in took 30 years for me to get into. I arrived there naturally and gradually through a process with the Lord. Nobody pushed me into it. I'm not going to push you into one, okay? But I'm going to preach what my convictions are. But guys, I love the diversity we have in this church. I love the fact that, like, I actually pray from the Book of Common Prayer in this service the words that we use at communion are from the Book of Common Prayer, like 400 years old. You probably didn't even know that. You're probably like, oh, well, that's what my church used to do when we were Baptists. Well, we actually got that from hundreds and hundreds of years ago. It's the same words that are used over and over again. I love that we do that, and then we also, in the back, will pray for deliverance from spiritual oppression after service. Like, it's hard to get those two, actually. It's kind of hard to get the Book of Common Prayer and a prayer for deliverance from spiritual oppression in one service, right? I love the fact that when we gather around to pray for healing, it's so fun because some people will be like, their prayer is all about like, Lord, just, you know, help him to just trust in your sovereignty in this time of suffering as he goes through these things. Just help him to really trust in you. And the next guy goes, Lord, heal him right now. You know, and I just love to have both, right? I want both. If I'm desperately sick, I want both. I want both kinds of prayer, and it's a great thing. These, these differences are actually a strength that we have. Um, and and the, So then what are we unified around? And, you know, if we're not unified around every secondary point of doctrine, what are we unified around? We're unified around the, the biblical teachings of who God is and what he has done in Christ to redeem his people, and it turns out that those truths are actually the most delicious truths. Okay, The most delicious truths are the ones of who God is and what he's done through Christ to save us. Those are not kind of the white bread, kind of Weber bread parts of the Bible. Those are actually the most delicious and savory of truths. And so we're unified around those. And so we can dig and discuss and debate on the rest, but we don't have to divide over it, right? We could learn from each other. You might change your view. That would be wonderful, perhaps. Uh, I might change mine. You know, I'm still in a process as well. But we don't have to divide over these things. And what he's saying here is that we should strive to live together with a mind that wants to live harmoniously, a unity of mind, that we are unified around our one identity. Peter says our one identity is that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So we can be unified around that, right, our identity. We can be unified around our calling, 1 Peter 2.9, we are called to proclaim his excellencies, the excellencies of he who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We unite around that. We unite around our one ambition, which is in 1 Peter 4.11, which is to him belong all glory and dominion forever and ever. We've got a lot to unify around. We can discuss and debate the rest. Okay, so that's the first one. Next one, sympathy. This word sympathy means to feel with. And it's a skill to actually be able to see the world from another person's point of view. And it's actually a skill that we have to develop. One author said that this, this word is, it's the ability to enter another person's emotional house, to make your way to their living room, and sit with them in their joys and in their sorrows. That's a skill. That's something we have to develop. That's something we develop. It's something that Jesus lives through us. Rosaria Butterfield said this, 
we may never know the treacherous journey people have taken to land in the pew next to us. Right? We may never know. But sympathy of mine is to take the time to try to know, to try to find out what their treacherous journey is. People, guys, are longing for a community where people will take the time to truly understand them, and the church is that place. Once again, I don't think this is idealistic. I don't think this is unrealistic. I think this happens already. It could happen more. The next one, brotherly love. This is uh, where we get the word Philadelphia from. And uh, so this is Philly love, right? This is brotherly love. It's a Greek word that was reserved for the love that people have for their own blood relatives. That's the way the word was normally used. Brotherly love. You have this kind of love for your own uh, blood relatives. But what's really cool is in 1 Peter, God tells us in, in 1 Peter 1.3 that God the Father actually caused you to be born again such that he became your father, and now every other Christian, every other Christian, not just the ones in this room, every other Christian became your brother and sister. Isn't that amazing? So we now live together in little local bands of little families of God's kids, and that's what the local church is. And guys, this reminds us how important it is to remember what the church is, because we'll have no chance to develop something like brotherly love if we don't see the church as a family. A lot of people don't see the church as a family. We talked about this before, but some people see the church as a theater. You know, you come to see a show, and um, you, you kind of experience, uh, you have an experience, and then you leave, right? And the people around you don't really matter. It's, it's about the show. Or they see the church as a marketplace. It's a place to get your, buy your spiritual services. I need certain services spiritually. I'm going to come, and I'm a customer, you know, and they better have good customer service because, you know, I could go elsewhere, Right? But the Bible says that the church is a family, guys. And, uh, and the only way you're going to even experience these things, like brotherly love, is if you would find a church family and stay there. Okay? And this is something completely foreign to our valley because it's like we're on like a rotation, right? So go somewhere for a while. And there are valid reasons to leave churches. I'm not saying that. But there's not a valid reason for the rotation we see, you know, because it's just like we're all swirling around, going to different places and stuff like that. And the thing is we'll never learn brotherly love that way. And guys, for you to commit to one church, you would have to swim against a cultural tide that's just, just so hard to swim against. I realize that. I feel it too. Um, our culture values freedom more than anything. We worship freedom. And if you could imagine the like four buckets. You have one bucket here, freedom. One bucket here, meaning. One bucket here, community. You're like, where's the whiteboard? I don't know. So meaning, <laughs> freedom, meaning, and community. In our culture, our freedom bucket is filled to overflowing, while in our culture, our meaning and our community bucket are bone dry, and there's a lot of terrible, terrible life and psychological side effects from having no meaning and no community. So we have this huge overflowing bucket of freedom, and we see um, in our community that people have traded meaning, the meaning bucket, for freedom. That's where, when you hear people say, well, I'm spiritual but not religious, what they're saying is, is that I like having spiritual feelings and spiritual experiences, but I don't want to commit to a particular belief system or a particular pattern of life. And Jesus actually requires you to do both, right? And so they're saying, I'm not religious in the sense that I don't want to lose any freedom to have meaning, okay? And that's what it ends up being. It ends up being a religion you kind of made up yourself, which innately can't have meaning, guys. I mean, if you made it up, it's made up, you know, like, right? I mean, just by definition. If it came from your imagination, it's imaginary. <laughs> it has no meaning. So it turns out you have to trade some freedom to have some meaning, okay? Um, another place we see it is kind of the churchless Christian, which is an oxymoron, but it's a thing that you see. A churchless Christian is somebody that, that wants all freedom, and they sacrifice community, 
Because it turns out that you actually have to give up some freedom to have community. You have to give up some freedom to have family. Parents, how much freedom did you give up to have a family? How much? All of it. All of it. Okay? We're not asking for all of it. But you see that, right? You see, to have something meaningful called community, called family, you had to give up some freedom. And, and that's what a kind of, quote-unquote, churchless Christian won't do. And so they don't have community because they want all freedom. Um, and there's no chance, guys, there's just no chance you can live out these things, especially the brotherly loved one, if you won't commit to one place long-term. I heard Mark Dever say this week, he said, to be a pastor is four things. You preach, you pray, you love, you stay. Okay, those are the four things. Preach, pray, love, stay. And then what? Well, then you preach, you pray, love, stay. Right? Same thing for you guys. You know, you, you, you serve with your gifts, you pray, you love, you stay. And that's how we grow. And that's how we, any kind of maturity ever happens, right? The next one, tender heart. I love this one. Do you know what this is literally in the Greek, tender heart? Good bowels. That's what it is. The Greek is good bowels. And you can kind of see where that came from, right? They, they would look at the bowels as the heart back then. You could just think, like, that's deep, right? If you have good bowels for somebody, it's just a deep, you know, everybody's not going with me on this. That's fine. <laughs> but trust me, this would make a sweet Valentine's card, right? Like, I have good bowels for you, right? But this is, this is another word, guys, that points to the fact that the church is a family. Because this word was actually, in Greek, was reserved for family. It was the kind of compassion, the kind of tenderness you have for people that are your own family. It's, it's the kind of feelings and action you get when your kid's suffering. You know, when your kid's sick, which a lot of that's happening right now, or your kid's suffering, going through some great pain, you would rather take it on yourself, right? You're like, man, I'd rather, instead of watching this, just take it on myself. If I could just take it on myself. You do anything to, to, to help alleviate that. That's what this is, to have tender hearts towards each other, is to care in that kind of a way that we would want to do anything to, to relieve the suffering, including forgive them. Uh, Ephesians 4. 32 uses this word. It says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, same word, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And then the next one, a humble mind. You guys might find this really strange. I, I was reminded of it, and I thought it was strange. The first time I heard it, I still think it's strange. But the idea of humility was not a virtue in the first century. Gre- Greco-Roman culture, when they heard the word humility, they didn't think, oh, that's good. They thought it was terrible. Okay, They thought of hum- humility was a weakness, it was despised, it was something for slaves, not free people. Humility was something you got forced into, not something you chose. Isn't that interesting? And that just shows us how much influence Jesus has had on Western culture, that, that Western civilization now thinks humility is a virtue. That's, that's the influence of Jesus. It wasn't headed that way at all. And, um, and Jesus cha- was revolutionary because here we have God who came humbly and died on a cross for his people. It's revolutionary. In fact, all five of these uh, affections that are in this verse are really descriptions of Jesus' inner life. When we think of all these five things we're called to be, these are all things that actually flow from the very heart of Christ. Think about this, unity of mind, that Jesus laid aside his preferences to give us harmony with him. Or you think of sympathy in Hebrews. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but what? One who in every respect was tempted as we are yet without sin. Or you think of Jesus' brotherly love, 
right? It says in Hebrews 2 that he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, that he was made like his brothers and sisters in every way, that he became a man. God the Son became a man to actually know us in a brother uh, or sister relationship with us. Isn't that amazing that he did that? Or tender heart. I mean, think about Jesus' heart as he was, before he, he came in the flesh, his heart went out to us in our need. And he would do anything to alleviate what he saw coming for us, namely hell. And so it drew him to come and become a man and die for us. Or a humble mind. You know, who's a better example of a humble mind but Jesus? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I mean, God, Jesus being the ultimate humble mind, he went low to bring us high. And so these five words are actually, they're, they're the interior life of Jesus. And what I'm saying this morning is because you're united with Christ, he is ready and willing and even already is doing it now, if you're a believer, sharing his eternal, internal life of his own heart, his own emotions and affections for his people with you. And that as we um, learn to live in him more and more, we can say like Paul does, that God is my witness that I yearn for you with the affections of Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing? How do we do that? How do we abide more? How do we, how do we um, live in Christ such that we actually experience his emotions for other people? One would be, you've got to immerse yourself in this book. I'm just telling you guys, I'm not saying you've got to like read a certain amount of this book to like be made right with God or earn your standing before God. Christ does that. But I'm telling you, you've got to immerse in this thing. If you want to have Jesus' thoughts and emotions for people, you have to like chew on this. You have to like shove it in your ear. You just have to rub it on yourself. I mean, you need this book in you, okay? We have a, a Bible reading group that we're going through right now. And if you want to join that, let me know. But we're in Leviticus right now. And Leviticus is awesome. Long lobe of the liver and, you know, the blood and throwing the blood, smearing the blood and killing the animals and all this stuff. But it's awesome, guys, because what's happening is, is we're immersing ourselves in the thoughts of God. You know, and so as we go through Leviticus, we're like, this is strange, this is foreign. You know what I noticed the other day, though? In Leviticus, over and over again, it says, do this, and if anyone has sinned unintentionally, this is what they should do. Over and over again, it says unintentionally. And I'm thinking to myself, those aren't the ones I'm worried about. Are you mostly worried about your unintentional sins? I mean, they're a problem, but which ones are you worried about? Not covered. Okay, it's like an insurance policy and all the things that are covered. And it says, oh, we cover unintentional sins. What do you think? Yay! No, you think this won't work for me. Right? That's what it's supposed to do is drive you to go, I need a greater sacrifice, one that covers intentional and unintentional sins. Right? Got that from Leviticus. How cool is that? Right? We need to dwell in this book, guys. We need to chew on it. We need it to become our very way of thinking and talking. It's funny when you read guys like Spurgeon and stuff like that when they wrote letters or Newton. Over and over again, it's scripture. They don't cite it or anything like that. Why? Because it's the way they think. It's actually like verses. They, he's not quoting them. It's just become his thought process. The other thing we need to do, guys, if we're going to have the affections of Christ for each other, is we need to pray for it. I had a mentor. His name was Will, and he went home to be with the Lord a couple years ago, but he taught me to pray like this. He said, he, he said Eric, when you pray, pray this way. Father, give me your eyes for people today. Isn't that awesome? Give me your eyes for people today. Give me your ears for people today. Help me to have your thoughts for people today. Give me your emotions for everyone I see. What are we praying for? Because I'm united with Christ, I can actually have his thoughts and emotions come into my heart that I could think his thoughts. And this is something that we can ask for and long for. 
And as we're a community that learns to do that, we become that refuge and that support for each other. Um, the second thing we need to do is we need to, um, we need to learn how to respond to each other the way Jesus responds. Take a look at verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling or insult, insult for insult, but on the contrary, bless. Okay, what's this saying? This is saying that to other people in the church, and I believe he's still talking about the church, he's saying, seriously, people are going to treat you evil and revile you in the church? Yeah, yeah, we will. And so, um, not because we want to, but it's going to happen. You're going to, in some way, be offended, and those kind of things. I'm, this isn't prophetic, this is just the way it is. But when, we, when other people in the church injure or insult us, this is saying that we don't repay them with that, we forgive and bless them. And now, just from the beginning, I'm not saying like, people that do illegal things to you, okay? If somebody's done something illegal to you, physically abuse you, whatever, like there are authorities for that, you should report that. The state is there to defend you, Romans 13, that's what they're for, okay? But what I'm saying in these everyday injuries and insults that we get that occur in the church, that we're to not repay them, but respond with forgiveness and blessing. And guys, this is so practical, because we will injure and insult you. I will. I may, I may have already done it today, you know, one of my prayers, like for Sunday morning, is like, you know, I'm not as worried about the sermon. I'm worried about talking to you before and after. I'm like, Eric, just don't say or do anything that's going to contradict what you just preached. Like, just, you know, be quiet if you're going to do something stupid, you know, that kind of a thing. I could injure, I could insult you. I don't want to, but I will. We will injure and insult you. Welcome to Covenant Grace Church. Okay? <laughs> we'll put that on our cards. But what makes us unique as a family, as a church, as Christians is that when we're injured and insulted, we don't repay you with it. We forgive and bless you. And once again, this is not idealistic. This is not unrealistic. This is possible. It happens. It's already happening. It could happen more. Okay? I think this can totally be lived. I think Jesus' way of life here can be lived through the power of the Spirit because of your union with Christ, right? Because you're like a branch attached to the vine in such a way that your responses could be his responses because he's living through you. And so when you supernaturally respond to insult and injury, not payback, but you forgive and you bless people, you're actually seeing Jesus live through you. And when you do that, guys, you're going to find that this is the good, wise, and powerful way to live. Because the thing is, is you hear this and you think, like, it doesn't sound powerful. It sounds weak, right? If somebody insults or injures you. We are a very vengeful culture. I don't know if you realize that. Like, you wonder, like, you know, why do we have more shootings? Why do we have more all these things? You know, like, we are a very violent culture, the Americans, okay? We always have been. That's how we got here, <laughs> okay? And so um, our responses, guys, are going to be retaliation because our culture has taught us that. But, guys, this is actually a more powerful way to live, even though it looks like weakness. It would have looked weak, guys, in the first century that it was written in, right? This is a shame-honor culture. Somebody shames you, you shame them back. You, you return evil for evil. That's what you do. And it led to a cycle of vengeance. And we see that in the Old Testament, right? Somebody commits a crime against somebody. Those people go over here, kill the whole village. These people come over here, kill the whole tribe. You know, it's just back and forth. Endless cycle of vengeance. You guys have seen this in your own family feuds, probably. But guys, when we respond to injury and insult with forgiveness and blessing, it's actually powerful, not weak. Because it breaks the cycle. It breaks the cycle of evil. And when we respond that way, we become a refuge and a support in the storm. Um, our typical ways of payback, just think about, like, how do you retaliate when you retaliate? You could retaliate physically, right? So you could have some active, active aggression towards somebody. You could um, retaliate or pay them back, repay them with words. 
could be active. It could be gossip. Gossip's a very active way of attacking somebody. Um, you do it behind their back, but you, it's very, very powerful. Um, it could be direct verbal attack. It could be passive-aggressive. Some of us are very good at passive-aggressive. We can make our little comments. We can kind of put our little things in there so that we look innocent, but we totally just got them, you know? You know how to do that. I know how to do that. I mean, I really know how to be passive-aggressive, okay? I don't know if you want to know that or not. But I do. I'm on the lookout for it, right? I know how to make a comment that looks like I'm being innocent, but I'm really just stabbing the person, right? Um, it, It could be coldness. You know, some of you guys at home, you're being cold to your spouse. You're being distant to your spouse. It's your way of paying them back, making them pay. It could be in the heart. You know, it could be things people can't even see. It could be that resentment that you allow to foster that bitterness. You know, bitterness and resentment are, I'm going to make them pay. Right? That's what it is, right? Maybe it's Confucius or somebody that said that, you know, bitterness is like uh, drinking poison hoping to harm someone else. Right? I'm going to make them pay, right? That's what that is. That's directly against this passage. But the Jesus way, guys, of responding is you get injury and insult. You don't repay. You forgive. But what does forgiveness look like? And that's why I have these brochures here because I knew you'd ask, what does forgiveness look like? Ephesians 4, if you look on the very back, um, this is actually a, a brochure you probably already have in a different color. That's a trick. You're like, ooh, new brochure. Nope, same one. Um, so we go over this a lot here. You guys are like, I've already been through this three times. And I'm like, yeah, this is important. This is a core value of our community is that we reconcile, okay? So you injure and insult me, we reconcile. We don't just disappear from each other. We don't hate each other. Now, if, you know, if somebody needs to move on to another church or whatever, we want to leave in peace though, right? So we're going to reconcile. And if you look what forgiveness is in here on the back, it says the four promises of forgiveness. These are based on the gospel. So Ephesians 4.32 says, to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you. And we prayed that in the Lord's Prayer, didn't we? Isn't that the hardest part of the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. It's a big speed bump. You might need to stop and wait there a little bit. Because you say, forgive me like I forgive other people. Hmm. Right? And so that's what forgiveness is. And let me read the four promises. So if you say, I forgive you, you're saying you're promising these four things before God. I will not dwell on the incident. I will not bring up this incident and use it against you, spouses. I will not talk to other people about the incident. I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our relationship. That's what it means to completely forgive somebody biblically and to completely release them from their debt. You know, um, God tries to assure us over and over again that he's forgiven us. He says that as far as the east is from the west, so far have I driven your sin from you. How far is that? It's an infinite distance, right? There's no getting there, right? Infinite distance. He also says, I've cast your sin at the depth of the sea, right? Israelites, not scuba diving people, right? They would have seen that as completely gone, right? There's no going down for that, right? And so depths of the sea. Or I put it behind my back. Like, what's God trying to do? He's like, Trust me, I seriously do not think of it. Or he says in uh, Jeremiah, I will remember their sins no more, right? God can't forget things, right? What does he do? He never brings it to mind. Somehow he puts it in a vault in his mind and puts it back here. So when he hears your name, he doesn't think, oh, that's screw up. Let me think. Okay, there's your rap sheet. Never. It's gone. It's not there. Isn't that amazing? Released. Gun. Does that feel good? You like the feeling of that? It's good, isn't it? That's what you're to give to other people. That's what we give to other people when we truly forgive them. And keep in mind that this is, a, this is built as promises. This is a promise you make before God, meaning that you actually promise this before you, can, you think you can do it. 
because you can't. This is something that you're promising before God and that he's going to help you do. So, well, I don't feel like I can do it yet. Okay, let's promise it and let's see what God does, right? That's the way it works. It's a promise before God. It's something that you have taken on before the Lord so that later if you start dwelling on it, you do what? You go like, Lord, I promise I wouldn't dwell on this. I am. Lord, change my thoughts. Give me different ways to think about this person. You repent of it as a sin because you promised to put it behind you. Okay, that's what it means to really forgive somebody. And I want to tell you, too, that when you do this, it hurts. Anyone that tells you that forgiveness doesn't hurt is selling something. I don't know what they'd be selling, but um, it hurts, right? People say um, about God, they say, you know, why doesn't God just forgive us? Why did, why did he have to come and die on the cross, right? It seems kind of extreme. Why didn't he just forgive us? And people that say that are not recognizing the fact that all forgiveness involves absorbing real pain. And all of you guys who have really forgiven something have absorbed pain, right? For example, if you were to pull out of the parking lot right now and slam into my truck, um, I would forgive you, um, but it, it, it needs to be paid for somehow, right? So it's my insurance, your insurance, or I leave it that way and I pay for it every time I look at it, right? Those would be the three ways this thing gets paid for. But all forgiveness, guys, involves a payment. It all involves pain. All forgiveness is absorbing pain without dishing it back. That's what this passage is about in First Peter. Insult, injury, don't repay them absorb the pain of it, forgive them, okay? I think that's important to realize. Tim Keller said this, everyone who forgives great evil goes through a death and a resurrection, experiencing the nails, blood, sweat, and tears. It's a promise that we make before God that we're going to forgive them, and then we wrestle through the pain of that and the logistics of actually keeping those promises with the Lord. We've released them from their debt. And we're not only called to forgive them, guys, but bless them. You're like, that was enough. No, there's more. Look at verse 9. He says, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you've been called. So God is actually saying, not only are you not called to active aggression, you also aren't allowed to do passive aggression. You also aren't allowed to do some, like, fake neutrality. You know, it's like, I'm just kind of done, and, you know, we've moved on. And, but you're super bitter still, okay? There's no real neutrality in this whole thing, right? He has actually called this not to active aggression, passive aggression, fake neutrality, but active blessing. Like, this is extreme, I can't do this. Yes, you can't do anything God's commanded, actually. Right? This is something the Spirit will do through you, though. This is something you can do because you're united with Christ. This word, bless, is actually the word for eulogy, which means to speak well of, right? Like at a funeral. And so he's saying that we are to, um, it involves invoking God's blessing on the one who sinned against you and actively looking to do them good. Do you guys see how good and wise and powerful this is? If you really live this way, if we really live this way together, you know what it does? It looks like weakness, but it actually doesn't allow evil to win. You know? It is actually the power of God to break a cycle of vengeance. It, it, it looks like evil would win if we do that, but it turns out evil loses and can't grow. If we all respond like this, evil can't grow here. Right? Gossip can't grow here. And by the way, there's no problem I'm preaching against here. This is just the next thing in the passage. You guys have been wonderful. I haven't experienced anything horrible from you yet. Um, keep it that way. But... Um, but gossip isn't allowed to grow. Evil isn't allowed to grow, right? You guys realize that Satan wants to divide us. That's what he does, okay? And so when we gossip, when we kind of feed into that, when we get insulted and injured and pay back either verbally or whatever, or just remain bitter, you're actually playing on his team. And the reason why Satan wants to divide us is because he wants to divide and conquer. He wants to eat us up individually. That's what he does. Divide the church. He's very good at that. We've seen that over and over again. And then eat them up individually, you know, just like wolves do with the caribou, right? 
You look at those nature documentaries and the caribou all running and the wolves and you're like in the, you know, the helicopter and following along. Everybody's going cool and all the wolves are coming along, right? And then one does what? Goes off. Dead. For sure dead, right? The wolves follow that one and just wear it out. That's what he does, right? It says at the end of, uh, end of 1 Peter, there's a lion prowling around seeking somebody to devour. And so he wants to divide us. But if we respond this way, evil can't grow. Right? It breaks the cycle of evil. And that's what Jesus did. I love this quote by Cornelius Plantiga. Now, that's a Dutch name. In his death, Jesus absorbed the world's evil into himself without passing it on, and so cut the loop of vengeance that has cycled down the ages. You see how powerful it was that Jesus, on the cross, he responds to insult and injury, not with repayment, but with forgiveness and blessing. You see how powerful that was for him? That's the way he saved you from hell. He saved you from hell by doing that. So this is not a weak way of living in the world. This is the way he defeated Satan on the cross, right? He actually defeated the power of Satan and demons on the cross by doing this. This is the way he's going to renew the entire created world. That he actually, on the cross, has purchased the ability to make this whole place new. And he did all this by responding the way verse 9 tells you to respond. And, and Jesus taught this in his teaching, but more importantly, he did it when it was hardest to do. On the cross, Jesus took insult and injury and didn't repay, but blessed and forgave. Let me read it to you. Luke 23, 32 says this. Here he is on the cross. It says, the two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments And the people stood by and watched, and the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was an inscription above him that said, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanging uh, railed against Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself in us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since we are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And and then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Do you see the forgiveness and the blessing? Here when he's receiving maximum insult and injury, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he says, truly, today you'll be with me in paradise. And Jesus, guys, is saying that to you today if you'll confess your sin and trust in him. If you'll confess, what confession is, is admitting the way that you've insulted and injured God. The way you've insulted and injured Christ. Just like those thieves had. Both of them had in the beginning, right? And you say, well, that sounds weird. Guys, sin is actually a personal offense toward God. This is kind of an example that helps. Um, When you get pulled over by the highway patrol and you were going like 80 miles an hour, he doesn't come up up to the door and say like, how could you do that to me? It's not personal, right? There's nothing personal about it. I ran it. He does his thing. He's not like, man, you know, after all we've been through together, you do this to me, right? It's not personal. It's different with God though because he made us. 
He sustains us. He keeps us alive. He gives us every good thing we have. So our offense to him is more like the prodigal son, right? To say, I wish you were dead and go into a foreign land, right? And, and, and curse his father, right? It's personal, guys. Sin against God is a rebellion of the worst kind of ingratitude. It's a personal injury and insult to God. But on the cross, Jesus absorbs that pain instead of repaying it and instead will forgive and bless you. That's the gospel if you trust in him, if you renounce those sins. And why wouldn't you want to repent and renounce and live free of those sins if you know now that it's an insult and injury to Christ? You know? Why wouldn't you? Some people say, well, you know, you should just say, you should just tell them to trust in Jesus and not tell them to repent of their sin. That makes no sense, right? Repentance is about, I've decided to stop injuring and insulting Christ because I'm trusting in him to, to meet my greatest need. And Jesus, guys, is still responding that way every time we respond that way because it's Christ living in you. It's Christ doing that safe thing in you. And God has a blessing for it. I'm going to do this real quick, but look at verse 9. There's a blessing. Verse 9, he says, To this you've been called that you might obtain a blessing. And then he quotes Psalm 34. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Um, what's the blessing here? You know, if we'll, for, if we'll forgive and bless when we're sinned again, what's, what's the blessing? He says in verse 10, it's to love life. And it says in verse 10, it's to see good days. What does he mean by that? What does it mean to, it, he, he goes on and he says a little bit further, he says it's to have the eyes of the Lord on you and for his ears to be open to your prayers. What's interesting is to love life and have good days doesn't depend on how people are treating you, obviously. Right? You can love life and have good days any time that you know that the eyes of the Lord are on you and his ears are open to your prayer. turns out to the degree that you're experiencing the felt presence of God is the degree to which you're having a good day and loving life. Isn't that cool? That's the blessing. The blessing would be this deep sense that the eyes of the Lord are on you. You'd have this felt presence of God that you haven't had before. This special presence is for those who are Trust in God such that they will respond to being sinned against in love and forgive and bless. That he gives that kind of experience. And this makes sense because if those are the times you're most having Christ live through you, it makes sense that those would be the times that you most feel the presence of Christ, right? And, and, and that's what's happening here. You, the best days and when we really love life is when we feel Christ the nearest to us. And we'll feel Christ the nearest to us when his life is actually flowing through us in this way. It's the days when you're the nearest the cross, right? It's the days when you're responding the way Jesus responded on the cross. And um, the Lord's Supper, guys, connects this text in, in, in three ways I want to tell you real quick. It connects to us in our forgiveness. It connects to us in our feeding. And it connects to us that we're family. First, it connects to us in our forgiveness. This, this bread and this cup remind us of the body and blood of Jesus. How Jesus took our insult and injury and gave us blessing not vengeance. Forgiveness, not vengeance. And I would just say, if you are trusting in Christ this morning and you are repenting of any injury and insulting against God, then this is for you. You come forward. doesn't matter what kind of week you had. If you're in a frame of repentance, you come forward and you take this as a remembrance of how God has sent his son to forgive and bless you. Um, it's also, I would say, if you're not trusting in him, you shouldn't do this because that actually adds insult, doesn't it? To take it without trusting in him. The second thing would be it's food. 
You guys realize that the Lord's Supper feeds us. The Father, by the Spirit, feeds us with the real spiritual presence of Christ as we take the bread and the cup. It strengthens us to feel and respond to each other the way Christ does. Um, you, and, and then the third thing is it reminds us we're a family. Paul said that because we eat from one bread, we are one body, and we, because we partake of the one bread. The Lord's Supper brings us together with Christ, in a way, and with each other. We're one because we share one. And so there's a reminder that we need to reconcile. If there's anything here between a believer, I don't know of things, I'm not saying this because of that, but this would be the time to do it. Now, what you guys might expect me to say is, if you have some difficulty, don't take the Lord's Supper, take care of that first, because of that passage that says, if you have an offering and you bring it to the temple, and you know your brother has something against you, you should lay your offering down and go make it right. Um, this isn't an offering, though. That's an offering. So if we were going to apply the text, we'd say, don't give any money to the church until you make things right with the people next to you. You heard that one before? That's how you'd apply it. Isn't that funny? I wonder why you haven't heard that before. Anyway, um, so, <laughs> so this reminds us that we're a family together, guys. So as we, this actually came from one loaf of bread and that we all are partakers in the one Christ. So um, what we're going to do is during this next song, you come forward, you take the bread and the cup, hold on to it though. And after the first song, we're going to take it together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for forgiveness. Ah, to be released from our debts. My sin, not in part, but the whole has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Lord, I pray for all those who are here who are truly trusting in your son that if they came with burdens of sin and guilt, Lord, I pray that it just fell right off of them just then. You're so good to release us from our debt. Wow. Unpayable debt. A debt that would go on for eternity in a place of conscious torment called hell because not one year there would pay any bit of it. And yet you said, it's gone. <laughs> what? It's gone. And we pray, Lord, that we would be, we who have been freely forgiven would freely forgive others. That we'd say, it's gone. I'm not going to make you pay. And Father, we thank you for the Lord's Supper that reminds us of that, Lord. Um, we pray that you would work this text more and more into us, Lord. I, you intend for us to live this way, and I praise God, I praise you that you're doing it. I see it. And I pray, Lord, that as Paul said to the Thessalonians, that we do it more and more. Lord, give us joyful lips as we praise your name this morning. Jesus. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.